Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Or a coffee, um, and have someone at your table count that out before the baskets are collected in roughly half an hour for lunch. Um, We'd like to thank the U of L for their support and distribution of notices, Country Kitchen Catering, and all of their staff for the lovely lunches and service, Shaw TV Channel 9 for broadcasting sessions several times weekly, including nightly at 7, CKXU 88.3 FM Radio Live and the Lethbridge Herald, and other media for covering SACPA events. Um, it's going to be broken up into three parts. We're going to have our speakers for about 25, 30 minutes, then lunch for the same amount of time, and then questions. And that'll be the most exciting thing any of us will do all day. Um, so we've got two presenters today. We have Linda Manyguns and Laura Crazybull. Um, Linda received her PhD from Trent University, Faculty of Indigenous Studies, in 2013. Previously, she had earned her MA at Carleton University and her BA at St. Thomas University. New Brunswick, as well as a Baccalaureate of Law in 1996 at Common Law's University of Ottawa. Linda Manyguns has been teaching at the University of Lethbridge since 2008 in the Native American Studies Department. Her areas of expertise are Indians and the criminal justice system, Native American women, family and community development, Aboriginal law, and Aboriginal development. Lauren Crazy Bull is a sociology undergraduate at the University of Lethbridge. She has produced three audio documentaries which have aired nationally. Lauren's focus is the intergenerational effects caused by the implementation of residential schools in Canada and the ongoing issue of violence against Indigenous women. Her work on missing and murdered Indigenous women is continuous and will continue today as we invite her up to speak. Okay. Hello. Um, thank you. <laughs> Today I'm going to start the talk off, and I'm going to be followed by Dr. Linda Manyguns. Um, we're going to be collectively talking about the issue of violence against Indigenous women, more commonly known as the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, and the need for an inquiry. I'd like to thank SACPA for having us here today and hosting such an important discussion in this community. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge that we are here today on Treaty 7, Blackfoot Territory. I'm going to be discussing a broader sense of what has been occurring between the federal government and the Indigenous community and ideas that I've learned since working on these issues and taking a critical approach to them. Um, I'm going to be bringing it into perspective by talking a little bit about my own experience working on these issues and how they've affected me personally and within my own family. Um, so a few of the things that I'll be touching on is Canada's colonial past, um, and most notably the implementation of residential schools in Canada, and more specifically in southern Alberta. Um, and also I'm going to be talking about Canada's colonial present and how that manifests itself through uh, the child welfare system and this most recent issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, and the way the documentaries have been structured um, have been in a way that have kind of reflected uh, the way these issues have progressing have been progressing into one another. So uh, the way I started out was uh, through a project called Resonating Reconciliation, which was a radio project 
by the National Campus and Community Radio Association, and they were looking for radio stations across the country to produce audio documentaries on the implementation of residential schools and what that meant um, to each producer. So uh, myself and CKXU put together a documentary um, called True Contact, and we talked about the residential school here um, near Lethbridge, St. Mary's Residential School, and we talked to a former student there who showed us around the school and talked about his experiences within the school and all the, the things that had happened in there to him. Um, and another thing that we did in that documentary was uh, we talked to students in the University of Lethbridge, and we asked them two questions, and the first one was, have you heard of a residential school? And the second question was, uh, what are your what is your attitude on the indigenous community here in Lethbridge? And through asking those two questions, we found out that people um, who had not heard of a residential school had a lot more racist attitudes towards indigenous people. And the people who did hear of residential schools and had more of a grasp on what had went on, um, they had more of an empathetic view towards our Indigenous community. Um, so I think that's an important thing to note is that a lot of people um, who hold these racist views I don't think are uh, hateful people. I just think that a lot of it comes out of ignorance. And um, so that's kind of what pushed me to make my second audio documentary, um, which was highlighting um, the intergenerational aspect of this issue and how the implementation of residential schools in Canada has affected our First Nations community today um, and what is coming as a result of it, such as uh, the, the cycles of abuse that we often see. And um, some of the things that they talked about at the Truth and Reconciliation Conference um, that happened about a year ago, they, there was, uh, I think, five, five conferences or so, um, but the last one was about a year ago. And they were, they were talking to people who had experienced uh, trauma in residential schools and hearing truths um, and trying to reconcile. And so, yeah, um, and that kind of brought me to the third documentary. Um, and because uh, an issue that came up a lot was this issue of violence against women. Uh, talking to anyone kind of brought up this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And... Um, and that's one of the things that I want to stress today here is that this issue just didn't come out of nowhere. We have to realize how the implementation of residential schools um, and how this, the current child welfare system is contributing to this issue of violence against women. Um, so a few things that I've kind of seen in my work, um, and not only from the federal government who who refuses to acknowledge this issue, um, but from several uh, several media outlets um, and in the just the discourse of this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, that they're harmful manifestations of this colonial attitude, and they come in the form of uh, denouncing the Indigenous voice, dehumanizing the Indigenous body, and erasing Indigenous experiences. And the rejection of a national inquiry tends to do all three of these things. Gendered and racialized violence are not just perpetuated by these three aspects. These ideas are all forms of violence against Indigenous women. 
Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about my own experience um, within my family. Uh, so eight years ago, uh, my Aunt Jackie Crazy Bull was murdered in a stabbing spree on 17th Avenue in Calgary. And so she was killed, uh, and anyone else who was stabbed that day, there were four other people, did not die. Um, but to this day, no one has been caught in this, uh, this horrific co- uh, crime. And so they continue to walk around and living their life. And my Aunt Jackie doesn't get to do that. And this isn't just an isolated incident that happened. This is, this is the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Is not only that this is happening to our in- Indigenous women, not only are they going missing or being found murdered, uh, it's being completely disregarded by uh, so many people, um, especially the federal government. And, and that's an unacceptable aspect of what we're talking about here today. Um, and I think uh, an illustration that I've kind of seen uh, recently of the intergenerational trauma is most recently my cousin, uh, Kyle Devine, was found stabbed in his home uh, about a week ago. And I just think that's a, an, a good illustration of kind of these things that have happened and the aspect of uh, people growing up, up without their mothers and not seeing justice within their own lifetimes. And so that's kind of like, that's kind of one thing that has happened in my family. There's been many um, horrific things that we've seen throughout our lives. But um, I just wanted to, again, stress that this is not an individual thing. And there are so many families dealing with this and so many families dealing with um, what went on in the residential schools. Um, And I think right now we need to realize that this... This issue is not only impacting us today, but it's going to be impacting us for years to come and our children and all the people who are growing up without the women in their lives. Um, so, yeah, um, moving on from that, I kind of wanted to talk about um, something Something someone said in my second documentary about the intergenerational aspects, which um, his name was Stephen Griffith. And he talked about how the foster care system, um, in his eyes, mirror the the residential school system, and how um, in in this time we kind of see it as a like the best way possible to approach this issue, and uh, at the same time, when they were implementing residential schools in its time was the best way possible to um, approach that issue. So I think we need to kind of realize when these um, these colonial aspects are kind of repeating themselves and manifesting themselves in different forms um, that we might not really catch at this time. But um, So I think that... Uh, I think that a lot of this as well, um, the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and the gendered and racialized violence in Canada, um, it causes a lot of fear. And what a lot of what I was hearing when I talked to people um, who know about this issue, just indigenous women um, on their own, just existing in this, this country that we live in, 
um, are just they just fear for their own existence because of the the, stati- the statistics that say that they're four times more likely to be found murdered than their uh, non-indigenous counterparts, and that on its own should be um, it, it is a scary thing. Like even for me, working on this issue and seeing these things happen alongside as I'm working on this and seeing this continually um, occur and seeing um, on online the the people who are going missing in our own community, um, the people who are being found murdered in our own community is such a, a worrying thing that it's, I think for a lot of people, it's very difficult to even work on this issue and speak out because of that fear and um, because there's a lot of unknown things that are that are going on within this issue that kind of strike fear in, into people and so I think it's it might be a little less productive because of that um, that fear that's happening. Um, so uh, what else? I think. Uh, for to, to kind of resolve this issue, um, a woman by the name of Janet Rogers, she spoke in Voices of the Silence, which was my third documentary, and she talked about um, how how can we um, how can we resolve these issues, and she broke it up into kind of three aspects. So, how can we as individuals um, look to solve this, and how can we as communities look to resolve this, and then as nations, and. Um, from what I've learned is that it kind of has to, uh, a lot of this has to come f- from within the individual. Uh, so um, for the, TR- the Truth and Reconciliation Conference, I think, uh, I think putting the word reconciliation into that title is a little bit uh, of a jump forward that might never happen, like the, the idea of reconciliation might never happen in most people's lifetimes because um, there's there's so little support out there that um, I guess it's more of an individual thing and you can't take an institution and say that we're going to just reconcile um, with everything. So um, I think that a lot of that just has to come from an individual basis and then um, it needs to kind of spread out onto a community basis. So uh, myself and Dr. Linda Many Guns have been working on this issue in our community and realizing that um, a lot of our energy needs to not be focused on on uh, trying to convince, I guess, the federal government that we need an inquiry, but more like, so how are we going to fix this in our own community? And how are we going to um, facilitate these discussions, I guess, in our own communities um, to fix this problem more immediately than waiting for the federal government to realize that uh, how important of an issue this is. So um, I think that is probably the most important thing that I've learned so far is just uh, just finding these, these connections within the community to try and uh, realize how we, can, how we can move forward on this issue. Um, and so that's that's all I have to say for today, but I just wanted to thank SACPA again for hosting this and uh, call up Linda Many Guns for her part of the presentation. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Lauren. Um, 
It's really important. Uh, one of the things that uh, is quite remarkable is the support that we have gotten uh, to date from the city of Lethbridge and surrounding communities by sending a letter to the Prime Minister's offices in order to request a Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. And while we need to work in our, our, our home spaces and start to recognize perhaps that there's a problem, uh, we, we believe that the deaths and the murders, the missing women, are symptomatic of a problem, a very large problem that's in society. This is a hypothesis of mine that I believe that we have a structural violence problem. It's a question perhaps that we need to look at. And so let me go through this. Okay, as Canadians, we truly believe we live in a good country. And I, and I, and I believe that in our mindset, we believe that we have a good country where, where we, we invite people of difference in, where we have space that allows people to have religious freedom, etc. We have that vision that we hold, and it's very near and dear to our hearts, and it's a very attractive mantra, okay? But let me go through this with you. Let me show you what structural violence is and uh, how that has transformed and been the underlying cause in in other countries that, that, that thought that they were very great as well. And so if you look at what structural violence is, structural violence is a manifestation that's put together. It's a legal construct, okay? And what it is is it's created by the governing systems that are in power, and they legalize the actions of society, social workers, police officers, etc. And so they're, they're upholding the law while they're creating elements that be, become issues at a later date. Okay? Structural violence is a system. Okay? And it's a system that's set up to maintain social order but at the same time, it deliberately sets aside a certain portion of the population that does not get treated fairly, that those rights are not uh, looked at the same way. We've, we've got several instances of that here in Canada. For instance, the Japanese internment camps, etc. Right? We have examples of these where we have uh, rules that uh, focus on the poor in order to protect the rich. We've had current issues where we've had uh, immigrant populations coming in. in. In particular, if you think about the news and the media recently in regards to the Mexican uh, immigrants being brought into uh, Canada or Alberta and uh, the issues that were raised. So let me tell you how this structural violence and how these issues end up manifesting uh, around us without our, you know, total awareness. And the reason I'm raising this is because I'd like you to think about, perhaps, the fact that Indigenous women 
are ending up paying the cost for a structural violence that may still exist as a result of a long regime of oppressive policies that have been targeted at Aboriginal peoples for over a hundred years. Okay, my sense is that we have residual effects that are that are still active. Okay. Okay. So what we look at is um, is some of the examples that. Uh, um, have existed. When I was doing this research, I found um, one example in a town in the United States, and it was it was a town called Hazelton. Okay, little town. The mayor ended up getting uh, charged as a result of this legislative uh, laws that he put in place, and he put in some uh, structural uh, legislation because he felt that the immigrant populations that were coming in were causing an increase in violent crime. They were crowding the schools. They were, they were causing all the emergency uh, uh, systems to be clogged, etc. That was his rationale for putting in place some laws that would restrict the, in, the increase in immigrant people coming into their particular town, right? He was taken to court, and when he got taken to court, he could not produce one single fact to validate any of those, those claims, okay? The problem, though, and Hazeltown is very important, the problem with that is that as soon as as those bits and pieces of legislation were put into place to start to restrict things, it caused fear in the, in the general population. Fear of other landlords, of renting, of hiring, of having anything to do with that immigrant population. And so it's not just the fact that there's structural violence, it's the impact that it has on the rest of society. There's a, a fear of, of the population uh, because it has been targeted. So Hazelton was a very important piece for me to find because it kind of looks at perhaps what's happened here in Canada. The government of Canada, as early as 1877, was determined that it was going to get rid of the Indian problem. They announced that in Parliament that hasn't changed much to today, okay? They're still trying to get rid of the Indian population through, uh, they don't use enfranchisement anymore. Instead, they have 6-1 and 6-2 status that people can automatically be struck from the ban list now uh, up in Ottawa. Uh, so they're still doing that. And so the population still has be become that target. And as Lauren was saying, the impact is this accounting or uh, emerging fear, right? Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that the people that are implementing these policies are all high level. Federal government. These are ministers that are administering these laws. 
Then what we have are other laws that took place here in Alberta, for instance, for, uh, for um, <laughs> excuse me, for uh, sterilizing, sterilizing Aboriginal women, and that was in place till fairly recent, and relatively recent. And those were implemented by the ministers in this province and by doctors, all professionals, high-level professionals. There's no doubt that there's going to be a residual effect in regards to the attitudes within the population towards Indigenous people. Okay. We can take a look at... Um, some historic examples of structural violence. And we can look at um, some of the really old ones that I found had to do with the Quakers. And in the United States, the Quakers were a targeted group that uh, they didn't want there. And it was a lady called Mary Dyer who resisted assimilation. And so she ended up being hung as a result of that all because it was followed, and the people that were doing this were following the laws that were created, okay? We have um, the wholesale displacement of Aboriginal peoples all along the eastern seaboard in the United States. That was all done through law without looking at their rights, okay? We have uh, discrimination of people of African descent, okay? who were held as slaves and, and whatnot. And that was all done legally, okay? So you have these legal constructs that systematically create the dynamics in which it's okay within a society, even good societies, in order to proceed and carry out the separation of rights from certain groups of people. Okay. The uh, other examples that I found were come from BC. Okay, and in BC there was uh, legislation enacted in 1895, and that was specifically targeted. Chinamen, Japanese people, and Aboriginal people were listed as never being able to hold title to lands. Okay, and then we've got. Emily Ferguson Murphy. We've got that case where she was a judge here in Alberta, and her lawyer actually argued that uh, for his client that he could only be judged by uh, people who who were proficient, right? That had that were qualified persons, and because she wasn't a person, she was obviously not qualified. Of course, she won that case, as we know, it's history, but. Those are all uh, evidence of systemic structural violence issues. Okay. Some of the international examples was genocide by the Nazi government. All of that was done with laws that, that were put in place so that the general population thought everything was operating legally, that there was nothing uh, untoward, that there was nothing the matter with the system, okay? That's a very uh, gigantic uh, example of, of, of this blindness that's created through these systems. 
apartheid in South Africa was created the same way. Again, legal structures that separate out a group of people and can target them, and the general population is comfortable with it. My question is, how will we be comfortable continuing to move forward without assessing whether or not the situation of murdered and missing women is not coming from a structural violence platform? Are we guilty of that? Shouldn't we be questioning? Shouldn't we be asking our governments for a review of the structures that surround Indigenous people to find out whether or not there are systemic issues that are creating these dynamics to continue to emerge? Those are the reasons why we're asking for a royal commission. We're not asking for another justice inquiry. I think that that's what the uh, Harper is thinking, because he keeps on talking about, oh, well, they're just individual issues. Well, it's not an indi individual issue. We're saying it's social, okay? Social and probably legal, and uh, it's a construct that's occurred. My sense is, from the support that uh, not only from this particular area that we've received, but from every single demonstration across Canada, thousands of people have been showing up. And it's, it's that the issue is profoundly um, un-Canadian. It's just unacceptable. But it's like we want to know why this is happening. And it can be reviewed. And it's not about going and checking out what the police are doing. It's about looking at what is it about the system that has ended up creating the dynamics in which we can have bodies and people's deaths go unmentioned, unacknowledged. No one cares. How can you have that unless there's a social construct there? Okay. So based on those uh, elements, and as I started to look at that, I believe that there's a sense of commitment on the part of, of us as Canadians, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, in order to be committed, in order to address, and to start to just find that honesty and to correct some of the dynamics in our system in order to create a Canada that we truly see as, as equal for all, that cares for all, that has justice for all. Thank you.